I was trying to come up with a, <clears throat> something to transition from our story last week to this week, and it kind of hit me um, as to what we'll get into as we begin to meet and greet a little bit more this king who believes he's a god, this little man god, Nebuchadnezzar. And it hit me uh, two weeks ago. Um, I, if, if you don't know me, I, I love sports. I, I love everything about sports except one thing that I really truly, not hate, but truly bothers me, uh, and that's Christians in sports. And it's not so much that they're believers and Christians, and I'm glad and happy that they are. It's when they get a microphone and a camera in front of their face is when it really begins to bother me. And there was this kid. He's a kid. Let's put it this way. He's, he's just a kid. He's a rookie. And he takes a team that wasn't ever supposed to be there. I mean, they had a fantastic season, and he did too. And he won their, their very first playoff game. He wins it, this rookie, this kid. Okay, And he gets on there. The microphone, and she asks him, you know, typically, how do you feel? It's usually the, the it's, how do you feel? How did you get here? You know, what, did, <laughs> what happened in the game, and what did you think? And then it's specifics after that, except that he began to give God the glory and his Lord Jesus Christ, and he kept going. And every question that she asked, he kept saying it. Got so uncomfortable that the network actually went to commercial because he wasn't giving them the, they want to talk about the game, okay? They want to talk about the game. And I'm all for witnessing, and I'm all for uh, praising God in front, but there is uh, something about that. There's something about giving glory to God in the moment of victory, okay? Because the following week, they got killed. They were truly, truly beaten, the interview this time, no glory to God. So again, it's this entire narrative, if you will, I, I think I've pointed out to you, this entire narrative of, of these stories in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, is highlighting again this difference, this true difference between the worship of Babylon and the worship of the lamb that was slain. This is where it begins. This is, this is where we as Adventists truly find our roots as to worship in the end time. Are we going to worship the true church? Are we going to be in the true church? Or are we going to be in the false church, the church of the beast? It has these two, uh, in time and history, has these two manifestations, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. But the Babylonian way of worship is its way of worship. So when you read a narrative, when we come to a narrative like we're going to come to today, Daniel chapter four, when you read that narrative, we immediately imagine who we are in the story, don't we? Has anybody ever gone through the book of Daniel and imagined that you were Nebuchadnezzar? No, we're all who? We're all Daniel, darn it. Okay, that's us, right? Are we really? Are we really when you see what's going on, okay, especially in this narrative. 
So to, to recap what happened last week, we, we, we have this man God trying to make these three uh, children of God worship this statue that he set up. And of course, he, they won't do it. Uh, they, they seemingly will suffer the fate that he, that he has prepared for them. He, they throw them in the furnace. And of course, the furnace does what to them? Nothing. Okay, because we find out that God is walking. God, a God with, lo, uh, with legs, okay, and, 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 and arms and legs is walking in there among him. And when Nebuchadnezzar sees him, he actually attributes that to him. That, there's a fourth one in there. Didn't we throw, throw only three? There's a fourth one in there. And he has the appearance, if you will, of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar's never seen the gods before. He's only seen idols. He's only made himself an idol. He's looking at the idol that he erected, this 90-foot gold statue of him. But that one, that one in the furnace, he goes, that looks like the face of the gods. And we, and we think that something's happened with Nebuchadnezzar. We think that, that it's going on. So it, to end it, Nebuchadnezzar said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel, delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. We read that and we kind of like that, don't we? We kind of like that. But to me, Looking at the next verse, to me, this is like praising God after you scored a touchdown. Because the next verse proves that, that that's what this confession seems to be. He then says, therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. See, the confession looks good. He admits that there's no other God superior. But what it doesn't say is that he really doesn't believe that. Why? Because he's still in charge. He's still in control. Nebuchadnezzar is now going to make a decree that everyone else worship this same God or they will be executed. The very same decree that was made to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to worship the statue, he now imposes on the rest of all the nations that are captive in Babylon. By the way, there are thousands of them. He promotes then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Promotes them as he has already promoted Daniel. What is Nebuchadnezzar saying? I'm still in charge. See, to me, it's the same empty confession. See, if you're going to praise God for winning a game, then you're going to praise him for losing too. See, but we don't do that. We don't want to attribute God. See, when he wins, I can, I can show the world because the rest of the world truly believes that about God. They truly believe that. They believe that if we believe in God, we're always going to win. So that when we lose, and we will we don't praise him. We don't praise. We praise him when we hit a home run. We don't praise him if we strike out looking. I've never seen a major league baseball player strike out and walk to the dugout going like this. 
Because that's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing now. He's had God thrown in his face here. He's had to confess because everybody saw it. Everybody knows that they were thrown into the furnace and yet they get out. He has no choice then but to confess, but it hasn't touched his heart. I'm still in charge. I still will use the Babylonian method of worship to make everybody worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And by the way, that is the spirit of Babylon. Doesn't matter as long as we're worshiping the right God. It's the God that counts. The end justifies the means. How many here would love that the entire world would worship the God, our living God? How many here would love that? All right. Do you still love it when you realize that 99.9 of them were forced to do so? Fear, force, coercion. That's all the power that Nebuchadnezzar has. And he's still holding on to it. And he's still using it. But some actually might say, but, but he's making them worship God. Everything's going to be okay, right? No. This is Babylonian worship. So Nebuchadnezzar has a little to learn, and that's what chapter 4 is about. Okay? We're going to learn what he then is going to learn. Chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. Who are you being greeted by here? Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's not greeting us. Daniel now is a transcriber of who? Nebuchadnezzar. You're now being greeted by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound, he says. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. So two things have happened in chapter four. Number one is authorship has changed. Daniel is now Nebuchadnezzar's scribe. Daniel 4 is the only book of the Bible written by a pagan king. The entire chapter. Sometimes we forget that or, or think that when we say all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for even the, one, the parts that were written by a pagan? No pagan wrote the Bible. Uh, yeah, Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar is writing this. And this is all from his perspective. The other thing you have to notice is that he's changed somewhat. Not completely, but he's changed. This is the first time you meet a smiling Nebuchadnezzar. A happy Nebuchadnezzar. You haven't seen him yet. The attacker and besieger of Jerusalem, one who would cut his own people to pieces and turn their houses to rubble, threatened to burn anyone alive who won't worship him, now greets them with this peace for everyone. Who the heck is this guy? Literally greets them. Shalimon, peace, Ishiwaga. Abound for everybody, he says. First time he ever invokes the most high God personally himself. He said the words, but he's never invoked them for himself. He even personally refers to him as the one who worked for me. The most high God who what? Who has worked for me. Something's happened a little bit. 
He says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. This is one of the reasons why we may uh, forget or not attribute the authorship of Daniel 4 to Nebuchadnezzar because he doesn't sound like Nebuchadnezzar anymore. In fact, right here, who does he sound like? He sounds like David. This sounds like a psalm. As a matter of fact, the rabbis that are commenting on this, the ancient rabbi said, he's stolen all of David's phrases. So what happened? Nebi, what went on? What takes you from what you believe that you were this little man God? What's happened to you now? So he's gonna tell you. This is what happened. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. So after that incident happened, he recognizes God. He thinks that's good enough, but he still is Nebuchadnezzar in charge. He recognizes God. He makes a public confession that he knows this God, but then he immediately takes control and becomes the little man God again and makes people worship this God of Israel, even though he's refusing to do it himself. I was at what? I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a what? A dream. This is his second one. When you talk about who God is willing to give the gift of prophetic dreams to, this is his second one, which, by the way, makes him even with Joseph. He now has had as many dreams as Joseph had. Remember? He had two dreams. The sun and the planet and the moon, all bowing down to him. And then also the stocks, everyone's stock, all throwing down and bowing to him. Joseph only had two dreams. Got him in big trouble. Changed his life. Nebuchadnezzar's now had just as many. Could it be that God is as concerned with this pagan king of Babylon who has taken his children captive as much as he's favored this favored son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Something to learn. I saw a dream, it made me fearful, just like the other one, right? When he had the dream before, was he at ease with it? Scared the daylights out of him. He had to know what is going on. So I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept what? Kept alarming me. Kept alarming me. So he does what he did before, okay? He gave orders to bring who? He gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners came in and related the dream. He related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Unbelievable. He's had the dream, but now he still wants to be in charge of the interpretation. The last dream, he wouldn't even tell them what it was, right? He was actually putting them in charge. He really wanted to know what this is about. This dream is alarming him. He claims he wants to know what it's about, but he doesn't really, because he brings in the conjurers and the magicians and everybody, and he tells them the dream. He gives them an opportunity to give him a favorable interpretation. He calls everybody who would do that, anybody who would favor, anybody who is fearing losing their life. Nebuchadnezzar is still in control. 
The Most High God has visited him, has given him this personal message, and Nebuchadnezzar still wants control of it. He's even going to control the interpretation. It's why he calls the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners, and the magicians. Notice who he didn't call. Who's missing here? Daniel. As a matter of fact, Daniel comes, but not because he was summoned. He just shows up. The next verse says that he just showed up. Daniel came. And Nebuchadnezzar says, Oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I've seen along with its interpretation. Again, it's very, very subtle, all right? But first of all, he doesn't want to be there. Daniel showed up and cornered him. What's he going to say now? He refers to him by the name he gave him. And then he says, I know the spirit of the gods are in you and there's no mystery, okay? You are the chief of the magicians. Who was it that gave him that job? Nebuchadnezzar did. He's trying to remind Daniel who's really in charge. Before you give me this interpretation, just remember, I gave you a new name. I gave you this job. I'm still your little man god. So in verses 10 through 27, 17 verses describe this dream. Daniel listens to Nebuchadnezzar tell of the dream that he had. A great tree grows even unto the heavens. And why does the tree grow unto the heavens? It's to get to the heavens. Remember, it's to replace God. Remember, at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the dream in, in chapter 2, God comes from the heavens to the earth. This one is an earthly being growing up into the heavens to try to do what? To try to fill the heavens, to try to replace the actual God he claims to believe in. He doesn't though, does he? The tree's who? Daniel will point out to him, the tree was you. Just like he pointed out to him, you're the head of gold. But what happens in the dream is that some sort of heavenly lumberjack comes down, chops down the tree down to a stump, and there's an iron band around the stump and a chain around it, and the man that is chained to it goes naked and takes on the mind of an animal, all the while chained to this stump, chained to this power. Daniel tells him that this will be you. This is him. But it doesn't bug him. It doesn't phase him. Why? Because chapter two didn't either. As soon as he told him he was the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar said, you know what? Since I'm the head of gold, then I can make it happen. I can make, uh, make sure that Babylon doesn't get overtaken by whoever's next in the chest or the abdomen. I'll take care of it. And it shows in chapter two, I mean in chapter three. Why? Because he made the statue all of gold. I got this. I got this, he says. In fact, in both of these, it's almost identical. 
Into whose hand he's given you, O Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 2, verse 37. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, into whose hand he's given human beings wherever they live, the wild animals of the field, the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over all them, you are the head of gold. Compare that to verse 12. It's foliage, the tree, it's beautiful, it's abundant, it provides food for all. And look, he uses the same words. Uh, Birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. Nebuchadnezzar isn't phased by the tree getting chopped down. Why? Because I got this. I was the head of gold and I'm this huge tree. I got it covered. I know what I'm doing. But then by verse 28, it happened. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, 12 months later, He was walking on the roof. Again, remember, I just want to keep reminding us, who is it that's talking? It's Nebuchadnezzar. He's telling the story. Twelve months later, the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Hey, was Babylon worthy of praise? Anybody here know anything about what ancient Babylon was like? What it really was? Three square miles, they think. Almost completely impenetrable to enemies. When they built it, they built it straddling the Euphrates River. And the walls come up to the river and they actually built it to where the the doors of the walls um, came all the way down to the water level. So one of the problems with uh, walled cities back then is getting food and water inside. So you could just siege it. You would would just uh, surround it and not let anybody in or let anybody out. Eventually, they're going to starve. Eventually, they're going to need water because nobody could do it. Israel, Hezekiah, finally builds a, a, a tunnel, if you will, from the reservoir outside the wall, and he brings the water inside the wall, which, which makes Israel a bit more defend, being able to defend. Babylon had the entire river inside. The walls kept them out, the gates kept them out, but the water flowed in. The only thing he had to figure out to do was, how do I grow food? Do you know that the hanging gardens of Babylon are still one of the seven ancient wonders of the world because of how they're described? I've seen pictures and it looks like uh, actually Nellie's hanging plants in her garden look better than this. These weren't pots and plants that were hanging up. These were entire agricultural fields that were suspended. Terraces, if you will, built into the walls and suspended from the walls themselves. They were huge. Imagine an entire uh, farmer's field of wheat, acres and acres and acres on this platform being fed by the river itself. Babylon was completely, absolutely, nearly impenetrable. As a matter of fact, that's how the Medes actually take it, the Medes and the Persians. They dammed the river. Belshazzar didn't even notice. Belshazzar is a partying drunk. He doesn't even notice that they dammed the river. And when they dammed the river and it quit flowing, that left this gap down down below the gates. The Medes and the Persians literally walked in. And 
And according to the ancient tablets, guess who the major architect of this city was? Our friend Nebuchadnezzar at 22 years old. And so he's taking all this in and it says, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been what? Has been removed from you. It was removed. And immediately the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society. He ate grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. He's truly lost his what? He's gone mad. He's truly lost his mind. He's gone completely mad. He has the mind of an animal now, literally, he says. He eats grass, body bathed in dew, and it almost looks like the dew has grown what looks like to be a covering. So it's, it's either his hair or it's mold or mildew or both. But somehow, as the scripture said, somehow, it's like this now for seven years. What do you do with a king who's lost his mind, but you have no uh, mechanism in place to be able to remove him from power? The prophecy said he's chained to that power. Iron stump around the, around the tree. The tree has been cut down. The power that he had has been cut down. Why? He's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore, that's why. You can't claim to be a little king man-god and be this crazy. And I'm sorry I use that word, I really am, because this is serious. Ancient texts report that this happens. By the way, psychiatrists today can still identify the syndrome. It's a variant of paranoia and schizophrenia. Gregory Zilborg, A History of Psychiatry, relates several cases between the 3rd and 17th century CE. It's rare today that it happens here, but it has appeared in many, many other places, and not what you would think uh, would be, safe uh, third world countries. It's in China, it's in India, in Africa, South America. It's happened, and the symptoms are exactly the same. Patient believes they've been transformed into some animal, and they behave that way. This syndrome that Nebuchadnezzar had truly existed and it still exists today. I was listening to a podcast recently that we're talking about the Habsburgs and the problem with the, the Habsburgs and the dynasty, the Habsburgs of Eastern and Northern Europe, you know, that for five, six, seven hundred years they ruled, but they kept intermarrying with each other. And so you end up with a lot, of, a lot of these emperors, if you will, that have emperor's power. But again, once you become an emperor, there's nothing that can happen. So they left them as emperors, even if they had serious mental health issues like this. And there was a king in Austria who actually believed he was a dog. In 1975, a seriologist, A.K. Grayson, published a cuneiform text that alludes to Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. 
It seems that for a while, his life appeared of no value. He gave senseless and contradictory orders. He could not express affection to either his son or daughter, recognizing his own clan or even participate in the building up of Babylon and its temple. So it shows they don't have any uh, mechanism to take him out of power. They still come to him as if he still is in power and he can do what? He can do nothing for them. Now, we look at it and we believe where did the illness come from? According to the prophecy, what happened? Something came from heaven to take away his power. So on the surface, we could say that this is divinely inflicted. God did this to him. How many here are comfortable with that? I'm not either, but hang with me there, okay? Hang with me there, because the prophecy said that that's what happened. But after seven years, seven years of this, look what happens in verse 34. Immediately, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar because the prophecy said this will happen for seven seasons. The same word that we use for years. When we get to Daniel 7, it'll be time, time, and half a time. Season, two seasons, half a season. We uh, make them literal or prophetic years. In this particular case, it was prophetic years. In seven seasons, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society. Eight gra- okay, I'm in the... I mean, I did 33. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him forever who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. As soon as it all comes back to him, the first thing he does is now what? This isn't empty praise anymore, is it? I lifted up my eyes at the end of the period and what happened. All right, so what do we need to learn here? According to the psychiatrist, no matter how severe the case, the patient always retained a fragment of consciousness and experiences occasional moments of lucidity. You know what? And if you talk to many people who are dedicated to mental health, they will say this about every patient that they ever had. You know who it's difficult for, uh, who it's difficult to to believe? It's us. We don't know these people. We don't spend time with these people. We're not wired to do so. My son, ever since becoming a psychologist, one thing that has been completely cemented in him is, of course, we do not, absolutely do not, give any, anywhere near the resources to mental health that we do to physical health. Why? Well, number one, there's no money in it. Nobody wants to take a chance and reimburse for what really needs to be done. But people that are dedicated to it, they will say this, that they stay dedicated to it, they still see people. Ask yourself this, if you'd been living back at that time, if you walk by where Nebuchadnezzar is chained and pinned in that seven-year period, would you still have seen a person? We wouldn't, would we? We would see it beyond hope. 
But what the psychiatrists say about this particular one, not, I'm not commenting on any other thing, but any other uh, mental uh, illness or syndrome, but this particular one, there was potential. There was potential for liberty and free will in there. And of course, the prophecy says this is only temporary. It is going to return. And that's just it, is potential. Seeing the potential that they're still human. By the way, did you ever wonder why God has to give the spiritual gift of mercy to the church? Because the gift of mercy is needed because even people who claim to believe, if we're not gifted for mercy, we will then tend to look at anybody like this and, and not see a human anymore. So God found a way in that moment of lucidity to raise his eyes towards heaven. And I always wonder, what did Nebuchadnezzar see when he raised his eyes towards heaven? He takes his eyes off of his splendor, off of what he did, off of what he created. By the way, which probably doesn't exist anymore. It certainly doesn't exist in his own body. He's not looking down at his own 22-year-old self and seeing that. But I bet that Babylon is kind of in ruins right now too. But he looked towards heaven. When he was looking at what he'd built, when he was still trying to be a God to everybody else, he lost his humanity. When he looked at God, he becomes a man again. And he knew himself that it was at once a beast, and now God gives him his dignity back again. So one thing to learn is, number one, we're all like Nebuchadnezzar. We all need our attention grabbed, don't we? Especially when it comes to how we view and how we see others. The Pharisee prays, I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. What does that Pharisee need? He needs his attention grabbed, doesn't he? His form of worship, his, his just showing God his resume in prayer, that's not cutting it. He feels good about it. He needs his attention grabbed, doesn't he? By the way, when Jesus showed up, he grabbed those guys' attention. This can't be God. This can't be the son of David. He likes people that are different than us. He likes poor people. Who's this guy? Yeah, we need our attention grabbed. And by the way, who's it up to on how he grabs our attention? It's up to him, isn't it? So if God really used this to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention, you and I as believers in God, we have to trust that that's exactly what was needed. That this was the way he was going to communicate with them. How do you get through to, a, to, a, to the guy that conquered the world, built a city that's impenetrable, looks like he could create a nation that could last forever. How do you get through to him? How do you make that guy humble? What I hate is when then we try to play God and then we try to tell other people how God is going to get their attention. And of course, we want them to go crazy. This is what we want. Because again, then we could feel better about ourselves. I don't need that much attention. All I need is a baseball bat to my head. 
The thing was, was that Nebuchadnezzar was helpless all along and he didn't recognize it. In fact, in the seven years, he's still chained to the stump. He still believes that somehow that tree still has the power that it has. Nebuchadnezzar was helpless, but he did everything in his power to deny his helplessness. He was helpless at the, at the foot of the statue. He was completely helpless. That God that was inside the furnace completely discombobulated him, but he did the only thing that he did, the only thing that Babylon knows how to do is that they claim to see God and then they make people worship him. Then that makes me God still. Nebuchadnezzar was still comfortable because in his mind, he still was God. Nebuchadnezzar gets that now. Listen to him. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's so many ways to go with this story. I understand there's so many lessons to learn. But I'll concentrate on this one just for now all the way to the end. Does God will these things? No one can question, right? Can the pot look at the potter and say, what are you doing? Why'd you give me a handle? Jeremiah says that's ridiculous, isn't it? And it's true. The great controversy says that. The great controversy is, it says that we're supposed to learn who is God and who isn't. Who is God? He is. And who isn't? We aren't. I never go very long without channeling Walt. <laughs> he is God and I am not. That's a good way to wake up every morning. Wear it on a t-shirt, put it on a bumper sticker. Actually, no, that, that makes other people read it. Actually, if you wear glasses, you put it on your glasses. He is God, I am not. I need to hear that. Does everyone need to hear that? Yes. But my message is supposed to be, I'm not the one to tell you that. because he'll figure out how to tell you. But I want you to consider this. I want you to consider what may have happened here. And I want you to consider whether or not you truly relate to being Nebuchadnezzar in this story or being Daniel. I want you to consider that surely he was a king and he could be destined. He couldn't be denied. He was in control. And he was in control of everything that the world admires about control. He had all the power and it was his. But I think of this verse that was prophesied him in the dream. Did I? Yeah, I put it here. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones in order that all who live may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of humanity. He sets the gospel over who? over the lowliest. As a matter of fact, the reason being is because the lowliest gets it first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why are they the most blessed out of anybody? Because the poor don't know what they're going to get their next meal with. The poor don't know what's going to happen in any given minute. The poor are the only ones willing to come to God with an empty hand. Everyone else comes to it with junk already in it. Usually our own righteousness. And Jesus says, I can't do anything with that. 
I need an empty vessel. I need to pour myself into you. I came to preach good news to the poor. Because even in the spiritual part of the, in the physical part of the world, who is it everywhere that gets it in the teeth in this life? It's the poor, no matter where we are. Right? He turned this into spirituality. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And blessed are the poor. They have no problem coming to God holding out an empty hand because they've got to do it every day. Even to get their meals. The lowliest gets it. Nebuchadnezzar was the perfection in power over. Babylon is exhibiting power over. God gives all power to Nebuchadnezzar. He just said it twice. He said it back in chapter two. He says it in chapter four. I'm the one who gave you all power. What Babylon does with all power is that the difference between the Babylonian way of worship and the Jerusalem way of worship. Jesus comes and says, I've, given, I've been given all power and authority and I give it to you and what I command you to do is to serve. The difference between the two is that Nebuchadnezzar takes his power and he uh, wields it over people. Babylonian worship, you worship the beast or you will be killed. Jesus is the only church that says, I'll give you all power and authority. Wouldn't it be nice to have all God's power and authority? Guess what, if you believe in Christ, you have all of his power and authority. And he says, the world makes people serve them. They exhibit power over you. You will have power under. You will do it by serving your friends and your what? And your enemies. Try to tell Nebuchadnezzar that back in his day. It's what keeps him in power. Right acts and mercy, love God, Love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself, but also love your enemies. You've heard it said, it's written, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them. It's counterintuitive to Babylonian worship. It's counterintuitive to the power of this planet. God is all-powerful and he sets it on everyone that he wishes. Now, on the surface, you can go ahead and believe that Nebuchadnezzar is getting punished for his pride. Go ahead and believe that. He grew too high and when you grow too high, God is gonna slap you down. Something actually Nebuchadnezzar himself tried to do to everyone else. Or we can go a little deeper because that's what's happening in this. The narrative has something going on underneath you can believe that love shapes God's actions toward us much more subtly, and in the subtlety is his power. And it does it better than humanity ever could. Humble, being humble, is a long way from humiliation. Will he humble us? Yes. But I don't believe God would ever humiliate us. And it's designed to help us recognize our need. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. Poor, mourning, hungry, thirsty, and meek. Does that sound like Nebuchadnezzar before his beasthood or after? It's after. Is this chapter in line with that teaching? Yeah. 
All human power throughout history has been trying to subdue the human will. And they use the tools that the world gives them. <clears throat> power, fear, coercion. And the worst is finally trying to convince people that God operates this way too. This is how God operates. This is what the church of the beast teaches the world. This is what Babylonian teaches the world. You've got it right. You just have to be worshiping the right God. And we'll help you along in that. We'll make you fear him. We will coerce you. We will force you. Temptation here would be to believe that God is actually punishing Nebuchadnezzar for his arrogance and his pride because it's harsh and it's swift and it's exactly what we want to do to everybody who raises their hand against us. But the one who gave him sovereignty just speaks and just takes it away. He takes away his sovereignty and this is the way that he has to do it. I believe I believe that in, 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 in all of the cases in which God needs to use some sort of means like this in order to give us a little bit of humility, actually what, what uh, uh, fuels that, if you will, and how, how, uh, how severe it is versus to how uh, uh, subtle it is, is up to us. Did you ever think that this was the only thing that was going to get through to Nebuchadnezzar? Do you think that God actually enjoyed doing this to him? What else was going to get to this man God, this self-declared little man God who believes that because he rules the world, he also rules the universe? The idea, I think, is, is the understanding of uh, somehow God acts the way we expect him to sometimes just to get our attention. You with me? Israel comes out of Egypt being hammered and pounded for 400 years, telling them <clears throat> that because they're slaves, they've got no gods on their side. And they believe the gods all do these very powerful things in nature. Ra, the sun, and the Nile, and everything. It'll bake the sun off of you if, you if you displease Ra. So when God brings them into the wilderness, he's got to exhibit some kind of power, right? Just to get their attention, because that's all they know. The idea of acting how one expects to be, this is how I look at some of the, these older uh, encounters of God with people. The meeting of some human expectations actually to even communicate with them. Because up until then, we just run from God. He reveals himself in an expected manner sometimes, but for a completely different or unexpected purpose. He didn't do this to punish Nebuchadnezzar. He did it so he could talk to him. Imagine being able to take the power and have no selfishness or demand not to use that power for his own pleasure. See, a lot of people believe that the plagues were attempts to evangelize Egypt, right? that the plagues came to, for Moses to show his power of, of the God of Israel, and then that would take care, all of Egypt would become believers too. By the way, how'd that work out? But he did have to speak to Egypt, didn't he? And if you look at it, every one of the plagues had something to do with one of Egyptians' gods, one of the Egyptian gods in the pantheon.
So we take that and we think that this is God's way of getting attention, is, is, is that uh, uh, he's, he's going to get your attention. This is evangelism, inflicting punishment and, and, and inflicting force and fear and coercion. That's evangelism in Babylon. It is evangelism in Babylon. And we end up doing it with all kinds of people. AIDS was a way to warn uh, a certain group of people uh, to change their ways or you're going to get yours. Any disease or poverty, you must be displeasing to God. The reason is, is because you're a sinner. You know, by the way, in this story, this is what gives me hope, is that in this story, we forget who's there. We forget who's there, whose name actually is God is my judge. And it's Daniel. If there's anybody who would have believed that this story, I keep pointing down here, to me, Nebuchadnezzar is kneeling down here in his claws. And his, so I'm, I'm, I'm pointing down here. Of course, he's right there, okay? But if there was anybody who would rightly feel you got yours, it would be Daniel towards Nebuchadnezzar right now. See, history tells us that he murdered his family. If Daniel is in the noble line, which we believe he was, he was a nephew or a grandson of Zedekiah, the last king of Israel who was in charge uh, during the captivity. And we're told in the history uh, chapters that uh, Nebuchadnezzar took out Zedekiah's eyes in front of his sons. And before he took out his eyes, he murdered his sons in front of him. We believe that Daniel was cousins to those guys, that he witnessed this. Then he brings Daniel in, tells him that you're now gonna serve me, castrates them to take away his royal identity, and now says, you're going to serve me. If there's anybody who should feel that Nebuchadnezzar is getting what he deserved, it's Daniel. He terrorized their existence. But look at his reaction. Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. That word appalled is is he's absolutely emotionally devastated that this is gonna happen to him. In fact, look who's trying to comfort him. I say to you, you've heard that it is written, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, what? How does Daniel feel about Nebuchadnezzar? How has he always seemed to feel about Nebuchadnezzar? He's so distraught that it appalls him. It horrifies him, if you will, the way to interpret that word appalled. Nebuchadnezzar tries to comfort him. Daniel says, I wish they would only apply to your enemies, implying that he's not one. See, we we want this to be a get too high and God will slap you down. 
And the preacher that I could find congregations and audiences, if that's all I preach today, if I had preached to you that, that you get too high and God will slap you down, there'd have been a bunch of people amening me. I thought I would have been on track. You would think that I'd been on track. But what we don't recognize is the one person that stands up and disagrees with it all and blows it all away is this one little noble prince of, of, of Israel who says, God is my judge. And he throws a, a monkey wrench and all that. I thought I finally get to hate somebody. Hate somebody as bad as Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel stands up and says, uh, nope. So that's why I asked, when we read this story, are you ready to dare to be a Daniel? It's been removed from the felts again, hasn't it? I always think, see, Daniel by, by then has been elevated Remember that he wasn't even called. He wasn't even there when Nebuchadnezzar forced everybody to try to worship the statue. I believe because Nebuchadnezzar knew that it would do no good. And so he was actually off in another province and he actually was doing something. He's been, he's been put up there around the level of a governor, if you will. So when this happens to Nebuchadnezzar, let me ask you, when you've got as much wealth and everything dumped into Babylon, how many people wanted to keep this little king alive? How's Babylon gonna survive if this is our king? What I'd like to think, and I don't think it's too far off because I really believe it's in Daniel's character, is that Daniel's the one that kept him alive. Daniel's the one that fed him. Daniel was the one that made sure with his newfound power that nobody touches him. God is my judge. Because he said that. You know, all the inhabitants are accounted as nothing. No one can do what I attempted and firmly believed I can do, but him is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. I really believe that he comes out and because of the witness of Daniel... He didn't get it. He didn't understand it until God interacted with these lives. He doesn't understand the hearts of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't understand the heart of Daniel. And now Daniel, I believe, I truly believe, has kept him alive during all this time. And when he comes alive and he sees what God has done in the hearts of these four, he now gets it. He now confesses, not because he can score touchdowns or rule the world. I really get it now. He was with me, he gave me the power. It was my misuse of the power that brought me here. And in my destitution, he was still with me. All I had to do was lift up my eyes. See, Daniel can't be threatened anymore. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can't be threatened. Why? Because they love their enemies as themselves. Life has to be witnessed, something worth experiencing, not just talked about, not just giving glory to God when everything is going fine. And we live under selfish dominion. Ask anyone who's ever decided to die rather than live as slaves. Ask anyone who's ever decided to die or free slaves. 
There will come a time in our life that no matter how fundamental we believe what we believe, it can, will ne completely negate the message if we try to exercise it above and over. The final accountability of our past actions will be now. This is what it means in, in the end time. This is what we'll be judged by. Not how much power we could get to exhibit over political, uh, military, uh, civil, or worse, ecclesiastical. If we try to exhibit over, then God will need to get our attention because this is it. This is us. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king in heaven. For all his works are true. His ways are just. He's able to bring low those who walk in pride. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. It wasn't because you were more numerous. It wasn't because you were more powerful than Egypt. It wasn't because you're more powerful than Babylon. In Babylon, he's gonna send an army of four. Four kids. It was because the Lord loved you and set his heart upon you and chose you, even though you were the fewest of all peoples. Kept his oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, in the kingdom, I don't know what you've pictured. In the kingdom, right now, right now, how, uh, how noisy is the kingdom? It's full of noise, isn't it? <laughs> the, the praise of the worship of the 24 elders and the four living creatures and all the heavens of all, they are constantly doing what? They're constantly praising. There's almost no silence in heaven. By the way, there'll be a half hour of silence in heaven when Jesus comes back. Why? Because when Jesus comes, all of the divine presence will leave heaven and leave its silence and it'll come where? It's coming here. When we all get back to the kingdom, it's gonna be a very noisy place. And prophetically, we see that the noise is all about praise. The noise is all about what he's done for me. That's what the noise is about. So I think that on every street corner, on those streets of gold that we're so uh, enamored with, I think on every street corner is gonna be everybody giving their testimony. You, me, along with John and John the Baptist and the disciples, everybody. And there'll be this one corner, this one corner, according to Daniel chapter four, that this pagan king will be given his. And I know that you'll all say, hey, we already heard this. Pastor Greg read to us. <laughs> That's, yeah, right. But Daniel chapter four, this is the, this is the testimony of this pagan king. How many want to be with Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom? I'll take it. I'll take this one over the last one, won't you? Okay. But we all have to make that decision. We all have to decide that we will be who Daniel was to this king. Had every reason to treat him as an enemy. Had every reason to tell him that God was punishing him to get his attention. 
And I don't think he did whatsoever. He's going to do it, by the way, again with one more king, Darius the Mede. But that's Daniel. God is my judge. So I think in all this history so far, in all of this telling, if you will, the felts have been the toughest, haven't they? <laughs> we think the zoo is the toughest, but actually it's the felts that are toughest. It's, the, it's these stories here. And we skip those. We, we skip right past them if all we're concerned about is the zoo. All, if all we're concerned about is the prophecy. So thank you for spending a little more time in the felts. A little more time with this guy. A little more time with our friend Daniel. Daring to be a Daniel goes beyond knowing the song, doesn't it? But in my opinion, that's our spirit in the end time. This is who we are. To be able to love your neighbor and hate your enemy? No. To be able to love your enemy and pray for them. The only witness, by the way, that is effective at all. Again, the difference between the worship of Babylon and the worship of the lamb that was slain. Thanks again for a little extra time in the felts. I will miss you and I will covet your prayers. We'll, uh, we'll keep you posted, okay? Thank you.